welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope you're doing well. Today, I'm going to be joined by Jeremy Johnson. And Jeremy's work has really had an impact on me over the last 18 months or so. He is someone to follow. His work is really speaking into the transition that we are going through right now. Jeremy is an editor at Integral Leadership Review. He's the author of Seeing Through the World and is a senior research associate at Perspectiva. And today we're going to be focusing on Jeremy's book, Seeing Through the World, that was published in 2019. That book is about the work of Gene Gebser. And I'll just borrow a little anecdote from Samuel Bonder, who I know has also gotten deeply into Jeremy Johnson's work and Gebser's work. And somebody said to Samuel, like, oh, I, I always thought that Gebser was this kind of footnote to Wilbur, you know, because that's how also I was introduced to Gebser as well. And Samuel said, whoa, no way. He is way more than that, you know. And that's my experience, too, as I read about Gebser and his thinking. It's like, wow, how come, how come it's taken me this long to be introduced to these ideas which are so pertinent for these times. So we'll talk about that today. We're going to explore the difference between Gebser's notion of development to more common notions of development in the West and why that matters. In Gebser's work, mental assessments of gradation, stages, levels and other forms of spatialized thinking are not sufficient expressions of integrality. And so you will hear about what are sufficient notions of of that. And it's a different notion than somebody like Ken Wilbur is putting forth. So we'll also talk about time and temporics. And we're going to talk about the unperspectival, the perspectival and the aperspectival. I find these really important distinctions that open up a lot for me. So there's a lot in this conversation. I just hope you can immerse yourself in it and really enjoy this conversation. We'll also put a link to Cynthia Bergeau's articles, which also are really nice accompanying articles about this book. She was also really impressed and impacted by it when reading this book. We'll put those in the show notes as well. Just a quick heads up, if you would like to join our online coach training called The Neuroscience of Change, it's all about how do you apply the latest thinking and the best thinking from the field of neuroscience into your work as a coach in a very practical way, then enrollment is now open until the 28th of September this year, that's 2022. There is an incredible faculty, Amanda Blake, John Viveki, Dan Siegel, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Richard Biazis and others. And you can find out more by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience of change. All right, so let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Jeremy Johnson. Jeremy, it's it's awesome to be with you today. And um, like I just shared with our little check-in, I'm, I'm actually really excited to speak with you because of the book you wrote, Seeing Through the World, which I found to be like one of the most exciting books I read in the last few years. So, so yeah, thanks for being with me today. And how are you doing? Thanks, Joel. Uh, it's good to be here. And it's, again, very heartwarming to hear that uh, the book is received that way. I um, It has its own little life. And I find it interesting when it reaches people and how it reaches people. Um, I kind of consider it a kind of literary child. So it, it brings interesting people back to me for conversations, uh, as it were. So uh, I'm looking forward to our chat today. Nice, nice. Well, it, you know, there's so much in the book. So the first thing would be like, where do we start? I think one place I want to focus on 
quite soon is you know the kind of crisis of modernity and how that might link to you know Gene Debs's idea of of the perspectival and time crises and and so on. But maybe the a good place to start is just to to tell us a little bit about the book and and like why you wrote it and you know what the intention was and then from there we can build on that yeah yeah i i wrote it mainly because there's really not a lot of secondary literature on gene gepser in the english language there's there's a few brief mentions by various different philosophers from different um uh, areas of study but there's no dedicated intro to the ever-present origin and Gepser as a thinker. Uh, so there was like, there was a niche for that, right? There was a, um, uh, a, a possibility of putting something together. And I was thinking, well, maybe it could be an anthology or maybe it could be a collection of different writers coming together and speaking about it. And that's still on the table, but um, it really just came together one summer. It was, it was uh, a, a lightning-like flash of inspiration as, as Gepser might say. Um, in a Florida summer in the middle of August, hearing some thunder and lightning um, and feeling motivated to open the word processor and just begin writing. And I had already been thinking about the book and the possibility of the book. And so this was basically the handshake with what the book would become. So I wrote the first chapter in a single session, a writing session in the summer and then the rest of it it kind of just took over my life from there so it was it was a thing that was happening so um that that's, yeah. that's the best way to describe that that process yeah well i think that that process in itself might speak to some of the concepts we, we're going to unpack today what would you say to someone listening now that, that why gene gebs's work is important and i know that that's a that's a huge question that we're going to spend the next you know 85 minutes exploring but but you know, in a in a like nutshell, as a teaser, like why do you think it's crucial? And then I want to ask you about like the times we find ourselves in, and you know, kind of flesh that out. So yeah. Well, part of my context is is sort of being in this integral philosophy, integral theory world, where so many different writers and thinkers are talking about world transformation, and I know Gepser has come up in an indirect way from folks like Ken Wilber or William Irwin Thompson. Um, but working with his writing uh, for the past 10 years or so, I, I became very involved with the Gene Gepser Society and um, some of that academic work and really just kind of stewarding his voice in our time. Uh, it became very apparent to me that his emphasis on time and temporics is, is sort of a unique communication of what this integral world transformation is really about and that this is not something that's emphasized necessarily by other integral philosophers and thinkers. So it was really the temporics question or theme. And maybe another aspect was uh, his articulation of our times is very much prescient, just in terms of he was writing uh, The Ever-Present Origin back in 1949. And much of what he wrote about, even though it was before the era of postmodernism or computers or the internet, the themes are still very alive for us today. Fragmentation, atomization, right? Um, this feeling of time accelerating and intensifying, this sort of haplessness in relationship with time and climate. There's many ways in which Gepser's thinking is very much the thinking of today or, or 
or the world of today, right? So he was very anticipatory as a thinker. And in some ways I feel as if uh, he is more appropriate for our times than even his own. There was a kind of latency in his writing. So in some ways I see, well, he's, he's arriving right on schedule in terms of what he's speaking to in the present, but that's like a little, little tidbit, a little synopsis as it were for, for probably what we're gonna be unpacking. Yeah. So just to link to that, what you're saying, I think it's interesting because I hadn't thought this before, but I, and I think this will lead into the, the, the question about our times, but I, you know, I, I got into Ken Wilber's work and was, you know, hugely inspired by that and, and moved by it. And then at some point it felt like it became, you know, like, oh, we're like, this is very intellectual and, and it's brilliant and it's pointing to the world and, and mapping the world and, and there's a brilliance to that, but there's something not not in here that's that's like that's important to me, and I think that led me and my friends into exploring how can we embody this and into presence-based practices where we were like we want to know what it's like moment to moment to be in some of these spaces, and I think you know I'm I'm just now connecting that to some of the things that you've written about in the book as being part of this emerging integral mutation. And so perhaps we'll, we'll be able to expand on that. You might get a sense of what I mean already. Maybe people listening are like, okay, what, <laughs> we have to explore what the integral mutation is first. So let's do that. Like, I think a good place to start is, you know, we, it feels like we're in a time where we're faced with all these crises and, uh, you know, like the modernity is kind of under so much pressure, you know, and some of the things that modernity has emphasized you know, rationality, um, problem solving, linear time, um, or the sense of separation and, and reductionism that can that, that has actually brought maybe beautiful things, but that I think people are getting a sense of now, like, hey, this is not all there is, and is actually maybe having us double down and have us feel trapped in some of these these huge world problems that we're not able to solve, and so maybe. You, could like speak a little bit about you know modernity and the times we find ourselves in in relationship to you know um, the the idea you write about in your book of of like the perspectival and the unperspectival and the aperspectival just kind of take that where you want like and you know you mentioned time I think yeah it's got to come into the conversation pretty quickly so yeah I'll just see where you kind of go with all that yeah, yeah that's a uh... Good question. It kind of covered. It covers everything, but it also has has a, a, a focus. So, Gebser has a, kind of a unique language to describe what we would understand as a history of consciousness, right? And um, he talks about the perspectival world as the world that we are currently living in, but sort of exiting from. So, so like Zach Stein talks about this time between worlds, right? There. Gebser talks about a kind of interim world where the previous consciousness structures are going through a kind of dissolution process where the modes of thinking, the modes of time, the relationships with self and world are all undergoing a kind of metamorphosis. But part of that is a very real sense of breakdown, right? A very real sense of dissolution, a, a de-worlding as it were. And part of his understanding is kind of creating this history of consciousness and understanding that, okay, well, during the Renaissance period, um, this particular type of being in the world, the perspectival, 
uh, which emphasizes subject and object, which some folks have called Cartesianism, some folks have called uh, rationalism or the secular modernity, right? A lot of folks understand it as just modernity, the birth of modernity and the emergence of the individual and um, progress-oriented culture, right? Technological, scientific, measure-oriented culture that emphasizes the eye, right? The oculus, as it were, that looks on the, on the world and stands apart from the world to measure it. Again, as you mentioned, wonderful gains in terms of empiricism, in terms of opening space up. So during this period, the perspectival age opened up space. It opened up the spatial, secular, measurable world in a way we hadn't really done before. Um, it was present before, but it hadn't been doubled down, as, as it were, um, in, in, in modernity. Edgar Morin calls it the planetary era, right? So the beginning of colonialism and beginning of... Um, uh, again, many of the ways in which we understand our own kind of origin story is through modernity, right? The modern day institutions and sciences, et cetera. Um, so, so this is the world that's currently unraveling and unspooling and breaking down. And it doesn't mean that rash, rationality and reason and empiricism are necessarily going to go away. It's just that they're no longer a solid enough foundation, right? There is complex dynamic systems, right? There are different time loops in terms of ecological time and Anthropocene time. So there's all this complexity that's breaking open the world again, just as perhaps during modernity, it was a breaking open of the medieval world. It was a breaking open of the unperspectival world where there were different ways of knowing and relating to the world that were more participatory, that were more analogical, more mythological, those kinds of that kind of eruption of a new world space is exactly what's happening today. And Gebser was articulating that in his own time with this um, implosion of the perspectival world and this new integral mutation or a perspectival world, which rather than being about space and subject object and distinction and empiricism and the eye as the sort of focal point for that structure of consciousness, we're moving into temporics. So we're moving from space into time. And the spatial world in the midst of that is kind of going through this implosion, right? It's, it's, it's um, how, how exactly to put this? Um, I go to McLuhan to try to talk about it, right? Because McLuhan is always discussing how electronic culture and the, not the internet, but in his time, television and radio were um, closing the distance between spaces and, and disrupting the Gutenberg galaxy, right? The age of print, the age of institutions. This new electronic culture was rewiring literally everything. It's a similar kind of feel with Gepser in that uh, the, the perspectival world of, of being distant from the planet and distant from each other is no longer viable. And so it's showing up first as a kind of negative. It's showing up as catastrophic implosions, uh, not being able to slow down technological level revolutions, right? That kind of disrupt industries, not being able to um, slow down our economic system to work with the, the biosphere, as it, as it were. Um, and these are these these kinds of tensions and ruptures are exactly indications that there is a new um, time space relationship emerging or mutating in, in culture and consciousness. I don't know if that does a, a good job at kind of, but it's sort of a sweeping vista of like these series of punctuated transformations of world spaces that Gebser articulates in in his writing. Maybe it's good to stay i mean i do want to kind of talk about the unperspectival and and you know also some of these um kind of structures of consciousness that gebs talks about but 
Maybe we could speak a little bit more about the the, the the temporics. You mentioned that word temporics and and time flooding in. I think you write about how there's like a crisis of time. I think we can all relate to that. So maybe could you speak about more about when you know when something isn't in this transition, the modernities in transition, the perspectivals in transition. What what are some of the like the, the the negative sides of that that we're experiencing that I think people will be, be able to relate to. Sure. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's, it's a little easier to understand uh, the, the shift into the a perspectival when we start to look at our actual modern history. Right. Um, so Gebster talks about when, when, a, when a, previous mutation reaches its zenith, right? When it realizes, uh, like an artist perhaps, or, or somebody in some sort of creative process, they, there's a moment of realization where it's really, the work is complete and you're gonna keep tinkering with it, but it's, it's finished. There's something that has been expressed. It feels, perhaps you feel satiated by it. Um, it feels like it has been voiced, right? There, there's a way in which each of the structures of consciousness has this historical zenith that it is it expresses itself in a complete enough way that anything after that is a kind of refinement or reification, or maybe even a kind of doubling down and quantification of something that was, that originally had the spirit behind it, as it were, the muses behind it, and maybe not so much anymore. You can think of that as, um, what Gebser calls it a deficient move, right? It's a move into deficiency for each mutation. And every structure of consciousness will have this. It'll be efficient, expressive, creative. It'll reach that zenith. And, it's hard to delineate when exactly this deficient mode begins, but there's just a general sense of moving into, into a deficient mode where there's an emphasis on quantification perhaps, or rigidification of a particular mode of thinking. So for Gebser, the perspectival world reaches that sometime in the 16 or 1700s. And it's really at that Zenith point that, that interesting other things begin to happen with time and temporics. And he talks about the eruption of time first occurring with the invention of the steam engine with James, uh, with James Watt in, uh, I think, the 1780s. And he, he kind of pinpoints this moment, which is interesting because other thinkers and philosophers like Paul Crutzen, um, who's, who's the, he's, he's the guy who coined uh, the Anthropocene, or Timothy Morton, who's the guy who talks about hyper objects and being ecological, mm. they both point to James Watt's steam engine as this really interesting historical moment for their own theoretical reasons, uh, but they're tied together with Gebser in, in many ways. Uh, as this particular moment where the machine age, the industrial machine age, the movement of the machine age and its forward direction, right, was an early expression of time, but concordant with that was all of these eruptions, political revolutions, right? The French revolution was going on. The steam engine was being invented. Technology was beginning to rewrite, right? Uh, our, uh, our, the age of industrialization that James, that William Blake talks about and writes about in his poetry sort of captures that moment of, of technological upheaval. And I, I would say probably many thinkers of the 20th century, jumping ahead now a little bit, describe history as this sort of nightmare or storm or, uh, you know, Walter Benjamin talks about it as uh, this sort of wind blowing in from heaven when he's interpreting the art of Paul Klee, uh, the angel of history. Um, 
so there is a sense in which time began to feel like a kind of storm that was onrushing us, something that couldn't be slowed down. Technological and economic progress, uh, modernization, right, industrialization, the the explosion of nation states and nation state identities from the 1700s onward moved into this interesting um, homogenizing you know, industrial age that culminated, of course, in World War One, where we began to feel like, you know, we had to hit the brakes somehow on, on all of this. Uh, but of course, it didn't stop, right? So then we have an entire century, World War Two, the atomic age of this sort of runaway feeling of helplessness or haplessness with technological revolutions that continue to disrupt our, our social relationships and, and perhaps, you know, our existential condition of being on the planet in terms of the atomic age. Um, but for Gebser, he understood this as all these conditions of time beginning to erupt and intensify as an overarching theme for modernity moving into this integral age, that time would continue to be this kind of thorn in our side that was exhibiting all of these different disparate conditions from, again, industrialization and the atomic age to now the ecological crisis, which is really a crisis of time and temporics where the feeling of this impending disaster, right? This feeling that we're already in it, that it's too late to slow down, that we don't know how to slow down, we're rushing toward it. So temporics has begun to occupy everything in terms of our thinking, in terms of our sort of existential ontological condition in relation to the planet. And this is very much what Gebser was talking about in his own time. And I would even say like in our, I don't know if we're out of the pandemic yet, but certainly during the pandemic, there has been this, uh, um, sense of time getting all disjointed of the nine to five schedule melting down like a like a dolly surreal clock. Um, I've seen articles articulating this as we don't have um, a time schedule anymore. Everything's a time soup, right? The weekends and the weekdays, right? Um, but even that is a kind of interesting move, right? We all kind of undergo this intensity of time with hustle culture, with the age of haste, as Proust used to uh, he called it. Um, so temporics is something that just occupies everything, but we don't really name it, but it's everywhere. And, and in, in many ways, the, the eruption of, of modernity as the spatial world was very much the same kind of thing for Renaissance thinkers and painters and early naturalists, right? That space began to kind of possess these thinkers and these artists to articulate. And in many ways, time is beginning to kind of possess us as this overarching theme that we're attempting to articulate. And we haven't even defined what, what I mean by time. Like we could say these are all temporal themes, history speeding up, climate as a kind of entanglement with pasts and futures. Um, obviously we're meaning time and Gebser means time in a much more complex way than just time as a clock or time as linearity, right? His, his whole view of it is that time is, like, um, time is like a network or time is like a complex that it has all of these different manifestations that are all interrelated with each other and might show up in technology. They might show up in our everyday life or feeling of, I don't know, um, not having a meaningful connection with our lives is, is a kind of little crisis of time. We're not able to be present enough, right, to sense into our relationships, to sense into our own becoming. So so time is this interconnected thing for Gebser. Uh, so we probably clarify that first before going any further, but it, it is something a bit more than just linear clock time. Mm. 
Yeah, I think we should talk about that because, I mean, just to stay, like, I can totally, you know, I think everybody listening, I think, can relate to this. I know I can, you know, like, it's, um, you know, just this sense, like, something's shifted for me even in the last 18 months where it's like, you know, I, I kind of like small part of me wants to go back to how it was. It's just I know I recognize that that's just not going to happen. Um, and and so, you know, and there's this sense of everything you're talking about, like the the my own sense of time in my life, but the, the global, you know, um, hyper objects, as Timothy Morton talks about, you know, like climate change, there's all these impending kind of events that are, you know, have a time sense to them. And so I just wondered, therefore, you know, it feels like the solution isn't to like double down on like, you know, okay, we've got to master this, uh, master time, you know, get even more efficient, like um, hit the singularity. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like it just I think people and myself are like, that's just that's just not the answer. That is, you know, a losing game. And so. And I think this relates to why I felt your book so inspiring. And I'd like, you know, it might open that discussion about time further. It's like, you know, there's got to be a whole order of a, a new relationship to to what time is, you know, that brings a new order of kind of a m mode of knowing and, and being and creation and and meaning, you know, like, and, and it feels like one that's not dependent upon a sense of linear time, or, or at least that has become, you know, an object with which one can relate to uh, when when needed. But, you know, and, and I see this in the coaching world, you know, for example, like, you know, there are modes of coaching now bursting in, which are like, you know, questioning that very notion of like linear incremental change that you can chart from A to B and, you know, you, it's, it's like, um, it's kind of got a problem solving pro, a pro, like feel to it. You know, it feels like it comes out of modernity. So, and, and approaches which are based on like a more unfolding way, like there, there's, you know, there's this like emergence that can start to take place once we relax certain tendencies that we've had, you know, around our relationship to, our own growth and evolution. So m maybe like, you know, you, you might spar off that, but like you could talk a bit about the, um, the integral or a perspectival and, and like maybe like weave into that Gebs's notion of time more um, into that. And, you know, I like the way that, that um, you bring art into, into your book, you know, cause I think that's a really nice way for people to, also access um, like what the perspectival and the a perspectival is. Yeah. Yeah. These are um, good, good inquiries. Um, what we've really just been articulating in terms of uh, these intensities and anxieties and, and there's a vertiginous element to it all. It's kind of dizzying. It feels a bit overwhelming. Right. And, and that's actually, it's a good place to start, I think, because all of us feel that. And so it becomes a kind of shared sense of, yeah, I, I feel that too. What is that, right? It's an opening into the integral mutation. Um, it's, it's a kind of an initiation into it, as it were. Um, but with the integral, mastering time, is, you're, you're right, Gebser doesn't think that we should double down um, in our own narrative uh, on the singularity and try to outpace time and speed up to escape history or something along those lines. 
Um, it's an orthogonal move. It's, it's a move that's kind of out of left field, as it were. You turn towards the present. Um, a lot of the, the, the insights Gebser shares that I think are some of the most profound ones are very related to simply turning towards the present. There's a kind of turning away from this future-oriented, directive-oriented mode of thinking, which is very perspectival, very mental, and it has a place. It has a relationship in the whole, as you were saying. It has, it has a, um, there's an aspect to it that's, it's a, it's reality, right? I mean, this is just the secular, spatial, material world, and the ego, the self that runs around in it and directs their, their will and, and, and does that, their activities, that's real. But there's all of these other dimensions of complexity. But the only way we hold that is not to continue to double down in one direction. It's to relax, become present, and be present enough to start to feel into these interrelationships, right, between yourself and your own becoming and other beings in your environment, right? The Cartesian ego that stands apart from the world is, is no longer a... Uh, an engendering or, or, or subjectivity that is supported by our world conditions. We have to find another way to be in relationship, right? Uh, so a lot of what Gebser is implying, and again, he's more of the philosopher poet and not necessarily the instructor teacher that gives you how to do it, but it's still in the text. And I think you probably picked up on that as well, the sense of, okay, yeah, becoming present seems to be very important. This This move from the sense-directed thinking to the senseful, as he calls it, senseful awareing is a move to become present. And that's that's really where you can begin to have a relationship with time that's actually able to integrate all of that complexity. Um, is actually able to act with the ego, with the self, sure, still there, um, in better relationship, in a sort of intelligible relationship with the present and with the world. So, so that's Gebser's move. It's this orthogonal move into the present. And as Gebser proclaims, and I, I definitely feel this to be true, and William Blake also wrote the same kind of thing, you know, to turn toward the present, the future is here, right? And the past. So there's a kind of intensity and openness and spaciousness of time when we move into relationship with the present, when we are sufficiently present enough to be open to those interrelationships. Uh, it's difficult to put into words, but this is the move Gebser talks about, right? This is the mastering of time, which doesn't look like conquering, which doesn't look like the mental, it doesn't look like modernity. It looks like a kind of slowing down um, to be in relationship and to be in complexity as a state of being uh, from which we might think and act and do all the other things that we do. But that's the move, right? I mean, that's the everyday human move to actually start to do that. It's just to... Um, Kind of disrupt our forward motion, slow down, be present, and then uh, really be aware of our tendency to kind of want to continue to direct ourselves, to continue that culture. It's no longer possible, but the more we can shift into this relationship with the present, um, the more we're working with a different kind of time and a different type of culture. And therefore, you know, you could extrapolate into a new worldview, right? What would a new worldview or a new mutation of consciousness be um, at a civilizational level if we started to embrace a different relationship with time? If time doesn't always have to go forward, if time is more immanental, relational, and complex in the present, then we start to think in the kind of ways that the Anthropocene or the climate crisis is asking us to in, in the sense of being present enough 
to sense into the future and the past and move in the present in relationship with both, right? With the mental structure, if you're too forward directed, you're out of relationship with your own past because you're running away from anyway, you're going forward, right? And you're not actually in relationship with the future because this forward directed momentum, um, there's a kind of groundlessness or de-worlding behind that too. So there's a kind of, I don't know, um, a de-worlded pinpointed now that the mental structure is kind of collapsing into. And I would say this is the kind of spiritual condition of alienation and atomization, right? Um, not truly being able to be present and in relationship and being truly atomized. Um, so anyway, I don't want to keep going too far, but that's, that's the kind of move from sense-directed thinking to senseful awareness and, and becoming present and, and learning to be in relationship with the present is this, this big move for us. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think back again to like when with Ken Wilber's work, you know, where there was this like sense of um, intuitive sense of like, oh, th this is great, but it's like I'm I'm like increasingly abstracting out of my my immediate phenomenological experience in a way, you know, like there's a there's a way in which it's sh for sure like empowering me, opening opening up certain distinctions, but but there's this sense of like yeah almost like moving more and more into that like that mental kind of realm you know which actually is somewhat distinct from perhaps these realms we're talking about and so um, i'm i'm re i'm like really pleased that i trusted that intuition and and moved into like presence based practices and um you know, it's interesting. I want to kind of like reflect this back because this is like where I love doing this podcast because I'm like, okay, I get to speak to Jeremy and it's like, it's for people to listen to, but it's mostly because I love doing it and I want to ask him all these questions. Um, and I keep bringing it back to transformational work, you know, and it's like um, that, yeah, there's a mode of coaching that I've experienced, you know, and, and people might know this mode of being through things like the diamond approach through inquiry where it's like, um, you know, there's, there's like, um, if we're just in, in an abstracted sense of self or part, you know, they, they have this like, um, sense of like, often a sense of lack or, or inadequacy and, and like they, they want to plan and problem solve. And so it's often, it's like they're thinking about the future, but it's actually also closing down contact with the future in, in a way, because it's like a mental projection of an you know an idealized place and and so there's this like mode when we can begin to like drop any change agenda you know when we like let like which because a lot of clients come in and they're like okay you know like there's a sense of time here like you know i i, I, I need to grow i'm struggling in my life i'm in the role i'm in with my work it's a challenge i want to get something from this coaching yeah like and we're paying you and like i've got 10 sessions and you know, and so you can feel it, like you can feel that time pressure they come in, and 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 I just know that the 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 order of difference that 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 arises, like in terms of, yeah, how it, it's hard to put words to it, but when 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 we're able to like begin to drop the change agenda and and to begin to include what's here and to you know access through our bodies and our felt sense, like you know, like what's here now and. And, and to to then open to that sense of the past and the future, it's like um, 
There's a different order of intelligence that comes online that begins to move the process, which is much greater than this, like, you know, thin bandwidth of the mental, which, you know, has a sense of, I want to go there. I know this should happen and wants to direct the experience to that place, you know. So instead, it's like there's this sensing and, and unfolding. And what can happen is is that that people land in a sense of wholeness. That's the other thing that I really loved about in your book. It's like they land in a, in, a, in a kind of embodied sense of wholeness. And often it's like, wow, this is incredible. This is what I was looking for all my life. And I didn't know it, you know, I didn't actually know it. It's, it's incredibly fulfilling. And there's, there's a sense of like gnosis, you know, like where, where knowing and being come together and they, they know out of being like, and it's, it's a different thing than like, you know, abstract thinking where I'm thinking about something, you know, and analyzing. It's like they're, they're, they're kind of like knowing from that being. And there's a kind of, like I said, a gnosis, a transmission of that knowing. And so, um, yeah, I kind of just see how all that lands. And, you know, that that's like I wanted to check in a way. I was like when I read in your book the things you're saying, it's like this fits for me of like, what I see emerging in different communities around the world and coaching, for example, like, could this be the integral mutation coming online in coaching? Mm -hmm. Whenever we um, shift into that process oriented, relational and present oriented mode of being right, where thinking is in service to process, right? The actual relationships that are alive in the present, that's that's to me anyway that's how i understand the integral mutation in everyday life it's it's the shift into the present it's understanding that this whole dis discourse around process thinking and process philosophy or process just process whatever whatever the hyphen has it's present oriented you have to be present oriented to be in relationship with the living processes right and to be um, this is something, you know, Tyson Yunka Porta talks about with the indigenous complexity, right? When you're in sufficient relationship with place and when you're sufficiently present, this is a temporal practice, then relationships can begin to bloom around you. Then you begin to get an intelligible sense out of the order of things that you're in relationship with what needs to happen. Uh, and, and Gebser even says this too, it's, it's knowing when to make happen and when to let happen, Right. That's sort of the, the kind of playful art of temporics that he's talking about, right? So sometimes that will, that, that directive-oriented mode is very useful in relationship to the rest of our being or in relationship to the whole. Um, so I would say that that to me sounds very um, integrative and very uh, aperspectable in the sense of being senseful, being present, being um uh, senseful to the relationships that we only understand when we're present, right? If we're too busy, if we want to go somewhere, we're not in relationship with whatever is immediately at hand, then also what might be in the past and what might be in the future. Haste disconnects us from relationship. And sometimes there's that's important, right? Like there is a usefulness in, in disconnect, but it's not something that we're supposed to be stuck in as a, as a kind of gear, right? We're kind of stuck in forward motion right now. We're not able to slow down or stop or reverse or have all these other relationships with the present. Um, so yes, I guess as my shorthand would be, that sounds like it to me. And what, what's your experience of, of uh, the past and the future being present in the present? Like, do you, you know, 
like how do you how do you relate like how does that show up for you guess yeah for me it's um and i think for a lot of folks uh, the future especially especially will show up as a kind of i mentioned at the beginning writing seeing through the world as a book was there there was this very palpable sense that okay this is the book as i'm writing it down and it can show up as inspiration um but it was also the past showing up there was a kind of communication across time like my own inspiration from gepster's writing and the invisible unquantitative moments right and the moments that were never written down or imprinted anywhere of gepster working on on his book right and 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 doing his writing and just being him um those subjective moments are entangled in my own so so there is this sense of of uh of the past and the present and the future and, and even writing that book right but then um it's also i i'll just kind of bring it more into embodiment too uh it's it's our own bodies and our own ancestors and our own bodies our own family histories and uh lineages um traumas right i mean it's our own health like we're literally the bones of our ancestors are in our bones and in our blood so there's a kind of relationship with those histories which is very much alive in and through us so we're 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 moving through all of these interrelationships of past and future in a very profoundly mundane way just from our health um from our thinking from our psycho spiritual dimensions of our own growth right what we're working through in relationship to our ancestors and and immediate family lineages um uh and then also who we're bringing into the world right we're part of that kind of context of intergenerational dialogue not just in terms of um having children in a in a literal sense but also you and I part of these conversations right now you know um what right. impact or relationship will this have with 30 40 50 years from now when like i don't know what coaching will look like then or book writing or the climate crisis but we're shaping the future right we're in some kind of relationship with the unborn right and with the dead with the ancestors and that's just always happening in every aspect of our lives um and other cultures you know again indigenous oriented and more traditional cultures may have had a relationship with the past that was much stronger and some of them with the future uh with this integral turn it's it's trying to be again you don't have to mentally hold it just being sufficiently present is to be in in kind of a natural spontaneous relationship with all of that um yeah i don't know if that's a direct answer but mm. yeah yeah well no because i can feel that as you point towards for example ancestry and 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 the future and this conversation itself you know that there's there's and the impact that it can have and the life that it might have inside of it you know there's a felt experience of of like almost like the future pouring into now and in a kind of inspiration you know like there's an aliveness to to our conversation right now which is more than just you know more than just two minds abstracting talking but there's a livingness to it which i think is felt and and is felt by people listening in you know like that's my experience of of like you know the beauty of for example um the podcasts that are out there now you know and i can listen to people like yourself or like tyson and and be moved by this wisdom which is again it's like it's pouring 
through them into me, you know, and through through their ancestry, through your ancestry. It's not just a kind of static, you know, expression of information. Like there's there's more more depth to it than that. So, you know, like I, I think it's worth kind of like underlining that. And um, I mean, I wonder, you know, I do want to talk about the magic and the mythic too, because it feels like there's there's importance in in those structures of consciousness you know that that um that maybe there's a, a movement of like reclaiming them the, in some way you know and um i do, i wonder if there's anything else we want to say about the integral first before we move there i mean not that we have to we, we can come back to the integral again and again but you know is there anything we missed about the integral that we would want to say now I, th- I think um, it's good to, to weave in the other structures, the whole history yeah. of, of, because that, that is the integral in a kind of implicit way, right? It's, it's this, um, and maybe this is the only thing, but, you know, Gebser describes it as transparency, as he calls it the principle of diaphaneity. And it's the sense of, well, we've been kind of alluding to this, this sort of natural openness and interrelationship of, of everything past, present, future, right? That that's the kind of, innate state of of the present the present holds all of that so when we begin to talk about the magic or the mythic that's kind of as as a result of that innate integrality that we are and in many ways the integral structure is is the realization of that primordial integrality right the primordial wholeness that's sort of brought into an actualized state in the human being and in in human culture and consciousness so yeah we could shift to the magic and mythic though um because it's it's very much and i've been writing about this in in the the book that i'm working on right now that that it's a sort of the, the integral structure isn't just um it's fun to talk about the past and the future and, and, and being in relationship or how the future shapes the present, right. As much as the past shapes the present. Um, but with the integral structure, the, the transparency allows for the concretion or realization of the previous structures, the magic and the mythic. So there's the kind of reintegrative process because in the history of consciousness um, we've, as we've been talking about this haste oriented, directive oriented mental and perspectival structure has sort of lost relationship with the magic and the mythic. And that needs to be remediated somehow. And so the integral allows that to take place. So I've been writing about this as the future kind of looks like a back leap in the sense of these older structures coming back into relationship with us in the present. There's a kind of healing, a regenerative dimension to the integral mutation that really needs to be accounted for. And I think we're beginning to see this just, you know, if we look at the landscape right now of um, a lot of the podcast communities and and discourse communities in our circles, there's a a very uh, appropriate interest in indigenous complexity and indigenous traditions. And we just mentioned Tyson, of course, um, or braiding sweetgrass and tradition, traditional ecological knowledge tech, right? So there's this sort of pivoting to, oh, actually, there's all of these forms of complexity that these earlier um, traditions and cultures, which we've all come from in some way, you know, this is sort of the way human beings lived for the majority of our time on this planet, um, that there's something to be learned and integrated there that is not necessarily a developmental in the sense of 
that was the lower stage. And now we're on to the mental and the mo and modernity and we're moving forward. Rather, there's a kind of nonlinear complexity. So, so there's, um, this is something Gepser talks about too, that the magic, the mythic, we could even say the archaic, uh, I'm going to kind of not talk too much about the archaic because it's a kind of latency of everything. It's a kind of a pro profoundly latent integral, right? Like as a seed, as it were. And it doesn't really have a historical correlate in terms of um, where exactly we'd pinpoint it. But the magic and the mythical, they have their own, uh, their own complexity, their own genius, their own ways of knowing and being in the world, and their own relationships with time, right? Mythical, I think a lot of us have gotten to to know more than perhaps the magic just because of the decades, but Jung's work on the psyche and the unconscious and relationship with soul and, and soul work, right? This kind of mythical image-oriented, unconscious-oriented uh, dimension is, is the realm of the soul, right? The, the realm of the imagistic psyche. I mean, there's a whole, we, we've done fields upon fields of, of work on trying to understand that and its importance, right? And its, its relationship with our own individuation process. So that's a whole realm there in and of itself, shorthand. And then the magic is, is very much, um, there's ways in which it's, it's showing up today through um, a lot of interest in, in altered states of consciousness and psychedelics. And again, with interest in indigenous wisdom and traditions, but the magical structure is this one thing in relationship with all things, right? That everything is, is a doorway to everything else. Everything's in this kind of vital interchange or interrelationship. This is very much where, what you get when you spend some time out of civilization and you start um, paying attention to the way living relationships actually occur, right? And our ancestors are embedded in that. And so they knew that very well, and that was predominant. But it's a part of us, right? Each of these structures are not, um, dimensions of self that we can sever our relationship with without profound, profound consequences. And part of the problems of the 20th century, Gepser attributes to, are the severing of relationship with the magic and the mythic, with roots and traditions, with senses of place, right? Those, those um, innate capacities to be in relationship with psyche, with place, with um, uh, living animistic relationship with the world. Uh, those don't go away, but they channel into strange um, modern manifestations. So we could say the kind of techno vitalism of modernity, the sort of like fetishization of speed and the machine, like the Italian futurists were so good at uh, expressing um, they, they write these poet these poems about race cars and this is when race cars were new and cars were new but they kind of imbibe these race cars with this animistic um, godlike uh, aura right there's a kind of vitalism in it um, Paul Virilio calls it um, techno vitalism this kind of um, power that we get from the machines and their speed this is a very kind of animistic magical um, attempt to kind of feel that into the world again, but maybe not necessarily in a healthy way. Um, and modernity kind of switches back and forth between this atomization and then unhealthy collectivization. And these earlier structures had a kind of more collective oriented sense of self, a relational sense of self, that self that was more porous. Um, and this, again, we, we need that. We need those dimensions in, our, in ourselves, but since we're not in good relationship with any healthy expressions of the magic and mythic, 
we kind of oscillate wildly between just being totally alienated and atomized and then joining kind of collective mass movements, right, um, in modern culture. In the 20th century, Gebser was pointing to fascism and nationalism as a sort of unhealthy marriage of deficient magic and mythic and deficient mental, right? Modernity kind of bringing up the unhealthy versions of all the structures. Um, so, so you could see how these, this is all kind of at interplay, right? It's all kind of alive and dynamically interrelated with our present conditions. Um, but the magic and the mythic, again, are, themselves are these brilliant structures, expressions of our being that we, we ought to become present enough to remediate and become familiar with and learn to be rooted again. And th there's a lot of discussion on that right now and just how do we re regenerate the planet? How do we learn from indigenous wisdom as moderns? Andreas Weber calls it a process of Western self-decolonization. What does that look like, right? Um, but then the integral question in all of this is, isn't it interesting? All of these structures are, are at play with each other. And there's a kind of, um, I read an article recently about this, talking about it as, as a weaving between indigenous knowledge and scientific empiricism. And I think that's a wonderful metaphor that, uh, for the integral and, and, and how it can weave and reweave and, and restructure all of these dimensions of our being in the present, right? Because they're all part of us. And that's the challenge right now. It's like, we're not undoing the mental. The mental needs to be here and it's fully actualized in itself. It hasn't before. So it's not going to simply go away as we go back into the magic and mythic, but there is a kind of return, right? There is a kind of move back to reintegrate. And in the present, right, even in our own lives, and we're trying to work on our own transformation, um, as you're saying, it's process oriented. We don't know how it's all going to work out, but there's a kind of restructuring or metamorphosis that's taking place. And that's very much what the integrals, not here for, but, but what it is doing, as it were, right, in this process of dissolution and reintegration of the past uh, and, and this emerging integral structure in the future. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, that was exceptional. Um, and just to, there's many things I can say, but I think you're right. Like the pro process work, in my experience, is what has allowed, um, you know, a kind of insolment to come online too. You know, this sense of like um, awakened calling or, um, you know, um, what is mine, mine here? To, what am I here to be and to give and to, to create, you know, that, that is that is um like not derived from that more mental realm of like plotting and planning my life and you know um, self-authoring my life in the years ahead, but it but it has a kind of like luminosity to it, you know. It has can kind of light us up and has a has a different feel, like one of like stepping off a cliff almost, you know. Like you have to take the next step and it unfolds and reveals itself again and um. Yeah, I mean, what do I want to ask right now? Um, I guess like, I guess I'm curious, I think you're speaking into this well, but just to ask, you know, it seems like the mythic with this idea of soul, I can see how, you know, like the meaning crisis, John Vavakey's work, it's like, you know, we've really lost, lost some sense of, um, of the sacred and the meaningful in terms of, you know how we can how we can embody that in our lives and i'm just curious about the magical the ma the magic um 
structure of consciousness. You know, you talked about animism, and, and, and yeah, could you speak a bit more about to what's lost inside of that? Is is it is it in terms of our kind of like um, immersion in the the, the the sacredness of the world in terms of who we are, you know, but you could speak into that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think uh, animism is, is as a word is is um, I don't know to animate is is uh, and and making it an ism is kind of silly, but it, it's a shorthand, right, to understand the the magic is is very much about relationship. It's it's to be is to be in relationship, right? If the mentalist is to to think, therefore I am, right? Um, that kind of Cartesianism. That the the magic is to be is to be in relation with other, right? So to be is to be in in community and understanding those reciprocities of um, giving and receiving of life and death of ancestors and the unborn, right? And even the magic kind of has an almost integral sounding. Um, dimensionality to it because of that. And Tyson talks about this in, in his work about um, this sort of relationship where ancestors become grandchildren, right? They kind of return for the next generation. So there's a kind of spiral sense of, of, of time or um, uh, Hilary Webb wrote about this. Uh, she was one of my uh, mentors in, in graduate school, but uh, she wrote about Andean cosmology as a spiral rather than a circle. Um, but it's it's regardless, it's in relationship with the world. How do we be in relationship with the non-human and recognize that to be human, to have a self and to have an ego requires a kind of um, uh, it takes it takes a, an entire village, as it were, to, to create a person, right? To, to, for, for personhood to arise. So so being in relationship to be to be a self is really what the magic's about, right? So. Um, the the doorway metaphor I, I mentioned before that everything is a portal to everything else. It's really to kind of point to that interrelationship or interdependence of things. Um, and if there's any difference than say like non-dual traditions and talking about inter, you know um, interdependence or interbeing that Thich Nhat Hanh describes, it's just the emphasis on that giving and receiving. It's just that you know life force in terms of. Um, the food that replenishes us, the trees and the plants that are always in communication with us, right? And us with them. It's, it's being in relationship, being in communication with the world and understanding that the self and the human being um, is a result of this collective networked becoming, right? That's always in this process of change, transformation, reciprocation, living and dying, Um so, so that's kind. Of, that's more of that sense of the magical, maybe a bit more palpable, and it's been articulated, I think, very well by a lot of contemporary indigenous writers and scholars. And really understanding, like that's sort of the foundation of to just to be on this planet is to understand those things, right? To successfully continue on this planet is to understand our interrelationship with the non-human world, and that might extend to spirits and. Um, more of this sort of non-secular understanding of these different dimensions. But if, even if you hear the way that those are described, it's very similar. There, you know, there's energetic parasites and there's spirits that won't move on, or there's, there's all these sort of vital dimensional processes that are always taking place, whether we're talking about plants and trees or, or spirits or ancestors, right? There's this giving and receiving interrelationship of all things. And I would also say um, 
just to kind of drive it home a little bit, uh, Gebser talks about this with a magical structure that um, he, he associates it with the ear. He, he associates each of the structures with a kind of um, sensory embodiment. And for the magic, he says, well, it's the ear because if you look at a lot of old cave paintings um, and, and Neolithic and Paleolithic art, there's usually an emphasis on like the eyes and the face and the top of the head, but not the mouth as if they're hearing, right? As if the, the psychic image of that face, of the visage, and then the auditory dimensions are the most important. The communal, uh, the silent communion and relationship of things is important, as if hearing other things is important. And again, if you spend a lot of time outside of like an urban environment, there everything is talking with each other. You spend some time in a forest, there's all of this communication going on. And that's how you navigate your world by the, in, the interspecies chatter um, and the elements, the different sounds, the different smells, right? So there's this, um, again, that's a way, and Gebser talks about this etymologically, to hear is to belong. And in German, um, gehoren, uh, to belong, is in, interrelated with the word horen, to hear. So to hear or to hearken is to belong to the world, right? To be involved in the world. So it's very much involvement relationship being as a result of mm. that involvement in relationship um and we need this of course like verveke talks about um we don't we don't live in a culture that values that at all we live in a very extractive when it comes down to it we're still pulling the gas out of the um out of the the wells as it were and and strip mining everything like we haven't really moved away from a culture of not having any reciprocal relationship with the environment other than extractive and dominated so uh we don't live in a meaningful culture and then even the human being as in terms of our everyday life we still i mean it's been disrupted but we still live in a culture that is completely oriented around directive purposeful haste, right? You got to hustle to survive. Time is money, right? The ultimate quantification of self, the ultimate loss of relationship with world. So of course, we're in a meeting crisis. We, we, we have no groundedness in, in all that. And I totally understand where Viki's coming from in, in that. But um, hopefully that kind of makes sense with, with Gepser. Mm. Um, the meeting crisis is very much this sort of loss of um, relationship, right? With the magic. The magic teaches us that. And I mean, uh, I'd like to talk about the 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 the, the world in general, and um, but maybe you could speak about the mythic. I found that so rich the description of the magic. I wonder if there's a way of of like expanding on Gebs's notion of the the mythic, and you know the you mentioned with the ears and the, this kind of receptivity or relationship with the magic, and I wonder if there's a, a correlate with the mythic. And he talks about a kind of circling. Um, you know, uh, with, around with the with the the mythic. So maybe you could expand on that, and then we'll we'll kind of like bring it home. Yeah, yeah. The mythic is um is interesting because uh it's so so one caveat is in terms of historical unfolding. Um, you could say that the, the mythic is a bit more predominant in agrarian societies. You might be able to say that, but Personally, I, I found that the archaic magic mythic and even the mental are pretty much showing up in some way since the Paleolithic, since we've been expressing culture. They're all kind of in an interesting amorphous shifting relationship. 
But when it comes to agrarian societies, we do we do tend to see like a drift towards more of the mythical and the mental. So a lot of the examples Gebser gives are civilizational ones, ones that we can kind of look at and, and have artifacts from and, and texts from. But it is very much related to the the heart. And and even though we mentioned psyche and image, it's a very psychistic in, in terms of an emotionally um, and psychologically um, I don't know, suffused image. So I don't know, imagine a, an intense dream you have that you were very, it was a very emotional heightened dream with very vivid image that seems to convey a lot of meaning and complexity, right? A very moving dream. That's the kind of um, palpable sense of the, of the mythical structure, the aliveness of the mythical structures, the aliveness of this imagistic world. And for Gepser, um, again, the, before we move into the mental structure, uh, as, as a predominant structure in our history, the mythic was like the magic involved in the world. It was a way to participate in the world, right? The, uh, the mythic introduces time in a way that we're a bit more familiar with. So rhythmicity, cycles and seasons, um, the lunar calendar, right? As, as, as one example, maybe more kind of feminine oriented and in, in terms of the lunar calendar and, and the rhythms of the body. Uh, but that still finds its way into civilization with all the great patriarchal, you know, god kings in, of, of the ancient world that have their different calendrical systems that have different ages of the world, right? But, but part of that is, is, is the kind of day-to-day -day tracking of the stars and the association of the movement of the stars with the movement of the soul, right? That the soul has its own kind of process that's spiral-like or circle-like and moves like as we watch in the heavens, there's a kind of rotation that goes on and we feel involved. There's an entanglement of what's above and below, which is, you know, that well-known hermetic axiom. So there, that's a good example of that as well, that interrelationship between the movement of the soul, which is both out there and in here and both as the world and in the human being and, and, this kind of cosmological unfolding, a, a psychological drama written into the heavens and then also involving us just as, you know, I don't know, the full moon kind of, people still talk about that today. You know, don't drive at night when there's a full moon, people are a little weird. That kind of sense of an entanglement with these cosmic celestial forces, right? So, so again, very participatory, very psychic oriented in terms of the archetypal realities and imaginal realities. And those are just suffused in the world, right? It's a way of knowing the world and involving ourselves in the world. And again, as part of the Verveke sense of that meaning crisis is we used to, again, have that kind of vital magical relationship and very much that mythical involving participatory archetypal relationship with the world where, you know, a mountain was not just a mountain. Um, in an animistic way, maybe it had, it was a person and had a being and had a relationship. And then also maybe there was a cosmic archetypal drama, right? In terms of gods that were at work, in terms of the, the dramatic unfolding. Um, and it's really not till we get to the mental that we sort of cleave the exterior world and the interior world. And all of the, all of that drama shrinks into the psyche, you know, like Wilbur talks about that and uh, James Hillman talks about that, right? Like that, that cosmic drama becomes in our heads. Um, but funny enough, Hillman makes this joke about it where he's, he's saying um, in some ways this, this was a bad move because now 
all of those gods, like they're not allowed, there's no shrines for them anymore. There's no exteriorizations of the psyche in our cities anymore. So where do they go? And the idea is like, they kind of go, they get channeled through our pathologies. They, they show up as this kind of frustrated psychological, um, uh, um, I don't know, any, any kind of psychological, modern psychological conditions, but they show up that way rather than in their appropriate dramaturgical channels of signs and portents and shrines on the, in the corners of the roads, et cetera. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a very vivid, imaginative um, way of participating in the world. And again, human beings have, this was, this was the way we did it for before civilization. Um, so, so anyway, that is, was that kind of a good, mm. clear enough? Yeah. yeah. And what, what I like is, um, you know, that, you know, you talked about this is these, these kind of structures of consciousness aren't like linear, you know, because I think that's one of the issues with, you know, so some of the developmental models is no, no matter how much they say, like, hey, more mature isn't better than less mature. It's like you just somehow can't get away from like that, that kind of perspectival hierarchical sense of it. And, and so, um, what I like about what you're sharing is it gives like the rightful place to the, the genius or the intelligence of each of these uh, mutations, these, these structures of consciousness that, that um, there's a, you know, there's a complexity and a genius in, inside of each one of them. Like I remember my friend Spring Cheng taking umbrage with some of the developmental models saying, you know, if you take an indigenous tribes member and you, they're in the jungle you know, and their, their ability to commune and, and, and navigate and, you know, see in that jungle is just immensely complex, you know, compared to us as, you know, these moderns placed there who, you know, freaking out, who, you know, cannot, cannot navigate or see. And so, you know, I, I, that's why I like what you're sharing is it, it allows. And so I guess like it leads me to like, muse a little bit with you around like where we might be going you know and um what the work might be you know for us um collectively and individually you know is is it seems like people are already naturally engaging in these types of work ancestral work um how do we relate to our to our uh, the world itself you know this bringing a kind of animism back into our lives um but i'm just curious like you know, maybe it's putting you on the spot a bit of like, what do you think is the way forward from here? You know, even, you know, even in the sense I'm talking like the way forward, you know, it's maybe like a modernist idea of like, what's the, you know, progress here. And so I want to call that out. But, you know, in a sense, like, let's still muse together on like, what, what, what's the invitation for us? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I um, in as as you say, there's really no way to, to prescribe that. And at the same time, if we're, if we take that, that axiom seriously, um, as Gepser does, and, and he calls it a preligio, um, he says, you know, in the past we had religion or religio, a binding back to, to the roots and traditions and to, to what was meaningful and important. Um, then the integral has a preligio, an obligation to the present, and I think that this turning again and again to the present is a very helpful practice, not only personally, but also to, if we are scholars and, and attempting to navigate our time between worlds, 
then turning again and again to the present is probably the most important way we get a sense of what is emerging and what is latent because we have a relationship with it. We have a tactile sense of it. We have a um, uh, ability to notice what is emerging in the present and to draw out perhaps the kinds of futures that we want to see really take hold, right? How do we want the integral mutation to be realized is kind of another way of asking your question, right? Because on, on, on the one hand, we could continue to double down on not leaning into the lessons of the present and continue to try to rush ahead. Um, and that has, you know, not really a great outcome in terms of the way our integrality is going to be realized will be through this sort of catastrophe, right? This collapse um, where our entanglement and our wholeness with the world will be realized, but not as a way that we owned and, and internalized and integrated and then realized in a healthy transformative way. It'll be destructive rather than transformative. Um, so we're really at a very critical juncture in this sort of interim period uh, where it really will require us to begin to think with time and what that looks like. I mean, it's, it's, a there's, there's, it's fun to conjecture. Um, but for me at the very least, and this is something Gepser looked at too, and a lot of different his, historians of consciousness, like William Irwin Thompson look at, um, these mutations are, they, they happen alongside, um, cultural artistic expressions, new senses of self and world, yes, but also new institutions, right? There's not going to be the same kind of civilizational structure with the integral mutation. I mean, we're, we have a lot of legacy institutions that are the most difficult to transform and are at this point five or 600 years old. I'm talking about our legal representative systems, our um, relationships in terms of our, our, how we organize power, right? Um, so I see those as the kind of most difficult dimensions, the structural dimensions that need to transform everything else around them are going to continue to kind of begin experimenting and are a bit easier to work with, but it's those kind of core bones and pillars of our society that need to be reworked. But I, I see that in terms of what's, what's coming is, is reimagining those things, um, is really, you know, McLuhan always talks about the medium is the message. And I don't think the me the medium of our age is the internet. I think the medium is the biosphere and the medium is integrality, right? We're already swimming in our integral wholeness and we're, it's a learning opportunity. How do we begin to work with time, develop economic and social systems that are more relational that weave in these previous epochs of the magic and the mythic and have the mental there as well, but as um, a, a decentered structure. It, it's no longer the the privileged center or locus or culmination of, of the past. It moves into a relational um, uh, uh, space with the magic and the mythic. What that looks like, I don't know. I mean, we talk about it today. We can talk about decentralization of institutions and economic power and, and governance. And I think those are beginning to catch this scent of this a perspectivity. Um, but those are still very early on because how do you build a civilization of 8 billion people with that? We don't know. It's, it's an open experiment. Um, but this is for me anyway, I understand this is as momentous a shift as moving into civilization was to begin with, like not even the Renaissance age, right? Um, the fundamental problems of 
agrarian societies, right, in terms of like not being in good relationship with bioregions, those are no longer tenable cultural practices. So um, the future for me looks like a very interesting hybrid of like indigenous complexity, modern empirical science, and um, uh, maybe a, a kind of non-duality of the human and the non-human and what that looks like. <laughs> Again, I can only express it in sort of poetic fragments, um, but that to me is the fundamental theme, the transparency of all of history, <laughs> of the human and the non-human, of all the structures, of uh, the biosphere and human culture. There's something interesting happening in that dance that is going to make a very strange and wondrous future if we can, if we can realize it. Beautifully spoken, and I can appreciate that, you know, like it's emerging, yeah? Like what we're doing is we're actually kind of presencing, presencing what's here and, and, and like attuning to that future as it emerges, you know? And so, yeah, it would be probably more in the mental structure if we were to start to too much define what it might be, you know? We might fall into some of those same traps. And, um, you know, I'm struck by something else as we speak which is interesting you know that a few years ago like again when I first got into integral I was really excited by it like Ken Wilber's integral work and I was like wow this is really exciting I was in my like mid-20s you know early 20s and you know and I was like the future's coming you know I always felt like you know this sense of like I know I know Ken talked about like the second tier revolution in some ways and and then and then more recently, there was a point where it felt like the future's here. You know, I was like, oh my God, for years I talked about the future's coming. And then I was like, that's that's not appropriate anymore. You know, the future's here now. And what I'm doing in our conversation is like, that's making sense in terms of this, you know, Gebs's notions of time and this integral consciousness. It's like, yeah, it does feel like we've something's broken open and that the future's here now. And that that means that it's not all like super exciting. It's like also incredibly disturbing because it's like I used to feel like secure in the notion that there was a, you know, there was this like future that I was heading towards and it all felt a bit stable and, you know, like, um, but I'm okay inside of that. But now it feels all broken open and, you know, like the, the future's here, but it's all to play for, you know, it's also not, it's not set in stone or determined like you're saying, you know, like, there, there, it could go in different directions, and so that's what I'm. I'm really come re kind of reframing in my my being right now as we speak, and um, I want to thank you for that, actually, Jeremy. You know, it's um, it's really an exquisite conversation for me a lot, and I know I, in a way I, I like just let you do a lot of the talking, and that's great because that's that's why you're here. But you know, I really really being impacted and learned a lot from what you're sharing and so thank you first of all and um i guess i want to like invite you know um where we might learn about your work and also you know like if people are like inspired by um experiencing philosophers or art or movies whatever whatever it might be you know like experiences that can Im Im immerse them in some of these structures of consciousness you know w where would you point people and definitely you know towards your work too because yeah thank you joel um uh it's it's 
heartening to hear that as well, because, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't see the work um, being effective if we can't reach each other and be in that place of like, oh, I hear this, this is, this is having an effect, not because of what I'm saying necessarily, but like the, the gaps recalls, uh, the verity of it, right. The, the truthfulness of it. Um, uh, there, there's something I've been playing with lately, uh, uh, from Byung-Chul Han, who's a philosopher. He's one of my favorite philosopher writers right now. Maybe that would be one direction. There's a short book for uh, listeners, if they're interested, called The Scent of Time. It's very, there's no Gepser mentioned in any of it, but it's very much a Gepserian book about presence and slowing down and how haste kind of severs our relationship with the present. Um, but Gepser always talks about you know, when, when the, the, the effect of being um, sufficiently present right, in this integral mutation has on the human being, which is that we are a being from truth. Like we are being in truth. We're speaking from the, the the truthful reality of the present. And that's where the authority comes from. But it's not authority of a person. It's like, well, this is just the reality of what we are in and in relationship with. And we can speak from that intelligently, right? And dynamically. Um, but Byung Chul Han writes about this as a, um, the, the capacity to be present is itself the way truth arises, that truth is actually relational. And I love this because it almost sounds postmodern, but he's not really saying that. He's talking about like the living interconnections and interrelationships of things that make them real, that realize each other in relationship. That's uh, So he's kind of associating becoming real with truth, with presence. And I'm like, okay, here's an interesting way to really kind of sink into what Gepser is talking about when he's saying integrality is a speaking from truth or from verity. Um, so, so just, just touching on that a little bit, but uh, I mean, if, if folks do want to connect with me, um, they can have my email, they can reach me on mutations.blog. Um, I'm on Twitter fairly frequently, probably too much. Um, so, and I'll give you those links as well. And we've got a little uh, Patreon community, and we host a, a, an annual course as well on Gepser called Seeing Through the World. And so we read through the ever-present origin uh, beginning in winter into spring. Um, and there's modules and there's a really beautiful community that's kind of growing um, around this as a practice. So it goes from like January into June or July, depending on on, on the year. And uh, yeah, we just read through Everpresent Origin and it makes a big difference to have a community with you as you're reading through a book like that because it can be kind of dense. Uh, it's a very Germanic, it, he's poetic, but he's also very um, challenging to read. And I think transformative because of that. It's a very rewarding kind of challenge of, of reading Gepsert, but we do it as a community. And there has been, interestingly this year, a lot of... Um, I've introduced these participatory modules. So folks have been, students have been organizing practice sessions. Um, we've been working with Rhea Box Collective Presencing and, and, and Rhea has uh, attended a few of these sessions and facilitated them with us. So there's a really interesting kind of shift going on within the community that I'm quite excited about to see it sort of take root and, and start to grow and propagate in, in different directions. Um, but yeah, and in terms of media, your question, uh, there's so many. I'll just mention maybe one or two. Uh, that might be fun if 
If folks have not seen Werner Herzog's The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, um, I highly recommend it. And I wrote about it in my book. But that's very much that unperspectival, magic, mythical world. And it's so good. There's, there's, there's um, um, a, a, a scene with a particular scientist who talks about the dreams he's having of cave lions that very much for me is like, if you want to see this sort of eruption of the magic mythic, like coming back into the present, that's a really good personal biographical example. Um, and it's just as a multimedia experience, I think it's, it's a powerful documentary to kind of um, illustrate what Gepster's talking about in a very palpable, sensible, auditory and visual way. Um, in terms of the integral, there's too many. We could probably do another podcast about that sometime, like different science fiction. I really love um, William Gibson's work on, on the peripheral um, and uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's lesser known Galileo's Dream, which is a fantastic little sci-fi that has to do with this sort of non-linearity, dynamical past, present, future. Both books are about that. So um, yeah, there's plenty to, to, to find out there, but you can connect with me and see what the mutations community is, is reading um, because we're usually poking into something integral oriented. Mm. Well, you know, I, I express my gratitude, Jeremy, and I, you know, just to, again, say thanks so much. I think this was a, an exquisite conversation and I really hope people check out your work. So, uh, and let's speak again. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime, Joel, this was uh, really fun. Um, very happy to be here. So anytime you want. Just a quick heads up. If you would like to join our online coach training called the neuroscience of change, it's all about how do you apply the latest thinking and the best thinking from the field of neuroscience into your work as a coach in a very practical way then enrollment is now open until the 28th of September this year, that's 2022. There is an incredible faculty, Amanda Blake, John Viveki, Dan Siegel, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Richard Biazis and others. And you can find out more by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience of change. Just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.